Hello and welcome to China Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Last week, dozens of soldiers died on the China-India border in the Himalayas. Why did this happen? What's the historical background? What does this mean for the trajectory of China-India relations? To discuss, we have on Akhil Berry, analyst at the Eurasia Group, and Sasha Reiser Kasitsky, former senior analyst at Eurasia, now pursuing an MBA at the London Business School and on the job market. By the way, before we kick it off today, if you've been enjoying the show recently, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash China Talk. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. So first off, what exactly happened? So that's up to kind of dispute about like who kind of antagonized who. It's important to kind of realize that there's not much reporting that happens in that area because it's pretty much restricted territory. A lot of the information has come from leaks from the Indian press primarily, uh, from senior government officials and senior military officials. But what it seems like is that there's been a series of skirmishes between India and China, Indian and Chinese soldiers on the over the line of actual control. This is the line that demarcates the border between India and China, but it's 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 disputed. China thinks it's about 2,200 kilometers. India thinks it's about 3,500 kilometers long. So these kind of like skirmishes happen every single year around this time. So as soon as kind of the temperature heats up, uh, tempers heat up as well, because it's a very unruly environment. So what, what kind of seems to have happened is that there was that there was a skirmish, whether or not it was a planned ambush or not, it depends who you ask. But the end result is that at least 20 Indian soldiers are dead and an, un, an unknown number of Chinese soldiers are dead as well. Uh, I think it's important to remember that you know, there's no one line in the sand here. Uh, the line looks different depending on whose maps you're looking at. And uh, it's not really quite well defined on the ground either. Uh, you're in extremely mountainous and harsh conditions and the soldiers don't necessarily know whose line uh, they're on what side of it at any given one time. So this, the scope for disputes is very vast when, when soldiers run into each other and they each claim that they're on the wrong side of each other's lines. Yeah, so this this is about 14,000 kilometers high. That's to kind of put in perspective. Part of the challenge is, is this goes back to the British times so when Britain controlled India. Britain and the then territory of Tibet negotiated a border treaty that's commonly known as the McMahon Line. The problem is, is that China was never a signatory to to that treaty. And so that kind of has laid the dispute for laid the current seeds of the dispute. Sure. So let's 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 spend a little more time on that history. So we have the Kingdom of Tibet and the Raj making a deal. Take us a little forward. Sure. So basically, what what you've got here um, is that when India kind of um, got its independence from Britain, and I'd definitely like to make a plug here for Dr. Tanvi Madan's book, Fateful Triangle, that kind of explores this issue. Nehru had Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru kind of had it felt that he could trust the Chinese. And he felt that kind of attention and resources needed to be devoted to the to Pakistan, and felt that that was much more of the immediate threat than the Chinese, owing to the to the idea that he had kind of reached an understanding with the Chinese and that they wouldn't get involved in India's domestic matters. But as with the U.S. kind of pushing India to take a much more aggressive stance towards China, then Nehru kind of held off on that, and ultimately, you started to see an uptick in kind of Chinese nationalist sentiment and cut much more of a belligerent statement from the Chinese, which culminated in the 1962 border war over this exact region, the Galwan Valley right now. So now, I mean, right now, that kind of takes us to this current dispute. I mean, so there's, since the 1962 border war, India has built up a lot of infrastructure on its side of the border and has invested a lot in its military. But the problem is, is that it pales in comparison to what China has. So India's kind of 
it's estimated that India has invested about 2% of GDP, whereas China invests about 5 to 6% of GDP in its military. Of a much larger GDP. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's, that's kind of the challenge that you see here, is that India's options are limited because India's economy was already in a tailspin prior to coronavirus. It's, it's even further now with some, with Goldman Sachs, for example, estimating that India's GDP, quarterly GDP growth will shrink by 45% this, in the second quarter. It, and it, it's, India's economy, which was on life support before, is even, is kind of on a ventilator now. Pardon the COVID-19 pun. I think it's also important to remember that that 1962 war really saw the Chinese dictate where this line of actual control is because it's pretty dramatically inside you know, India's original, more expansive territorial claims based on old British lines. Sure. So this border has seen these sorts of arguments, skirmishes, fistfights periodically. What were the dynamics of the past month or two which uh, precipitated the, the most recent uh, clash and deaths? So there are kind of two reasons um, that have been widely accepted for why now and why this why this clash turned violent. The first, it, go back to August of last year, when India abrogated Article 370, which granted special status to this to the then state of Jammu and Kashmir. So when India grant got independence and brought Jammu this princely kingdoms of Jammu and Kashmir into the Indian protectorate, Jammu and Kashmir had its own constitution. Article 370 removed Jammu and Kashmir's uh, special status and also bifurcated it into the Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir and the Union Territory of Ladakh. At the time, Home Minister Amit Shah said that India considers all of Ladakh and Akshay Chin as a part of its territory. And that's key for the, for where for the Chinese understanding is because they're very sensitive when it comes to territorial claims and they consider Aksai Chin as a part of their territory. So that's the first reason. The second is that India has started building up more infrastructure on its side of the line of actual control, including a road from Leh to what's known as DBO. What that would do is that would reduce the transit time for, for Indian troops to mobilize from the current six days to two hours. And China is, of course, kind of worried about that because they're, what the Chinese government is doing is they're building a railway from, that connects Xinjiang to Tibet. And they fear that the presence of Indian troops would affect their ability to develop that railway. I would argue that the infrastructure construction is the most proximate cause because India's claims to Xi Jinping have been around since since India was a country, although it's been under Chinese control since since that 1962 war. Uh, it, what, the, the infrastructure is, is the most important aspect. You see these clashes flare when one side builds a road into territory, the other side says is theirs, and they send guys to stop the road being built, or people are building a road in an area that everyone agrees is theirs, but one side wants to capture uh, tactically commanding positions that overlook that road and then would allow them in the event of a war to ensure that no one can actually use the road. And you see that in, in this case, the kind of the area that they were fighting over this last week was kind of overlooking part of this Indian road, this new Indian road. Yeah, but but kind of going back to the 370 and kind of what we were saying before about the territory, this is also the first time that the Chinese can kind of express their displeasure in a military sense, because as, as Sasha mentioned before, this is, kind of, this is very harsh terrain. So in August and September, that's when troops are kind of winding down and retreating back to their positions. So May and June is kind of the first period where you can have kind of these face-to-face -face military clashes. And indeed, like when you look at the Indian 
readout, it, the temperature is still pretty bad. I mean, if you look at the Indian readout of how the troops died, one of the cause one of the causes for seventeen troops is because of the low temperatures. One of the one of the notable aspects to me about this clash was that there were no guns fired. In last week's episode, I did a show about the Hong Kong protests, and Anthony DePierin he had this argument that the clashes between the protesters and the police were almost balletic in a sense that everyone sort of knew what the other side was going to do. And there was like a script for how these things played out. And to a certain extent, no one was really trying to kill anyone else. The next time Indian and Chinese troops meet in this kind of confrontation on the border, it won't just be with sticks and stones. Let's put it that way. These these confrontations have been, there have been a number of negotiations in sort of mini deals between India and China over these things over the years. I believe it was 96 that they had this agreement that you won't carry or won't use firearms within two kilometers of, of the line. But as we learned today, the Indian government has sort of changed those rules. And if it looks like the, the, the Chinese are coming in hot with the sticks and stones, bullets are going to start flying and things are going to get uh, worse before they get better. Yeah, and there was that debate within India about why why didn't the military use it? If you're under threat and if you're under attack, why why didn't they fire? And the I mean, the question is also did, and this has been endlessly debated in India, is even if they were carrying firearms, were they carrying bullets? And if so, when you see your commanding officer under attack, why didn't you attack back? They're not going to make that mistake again. Yeah, I mean, and especially now that kind of Modi is under this domestic pressure, I mean, as we've kind of seen, is that the opposition Congress party, the only other national co- party in Indian politics, they've been asking why did Modi allow this to happen? And especially given that Modi has projected himself as a strong individual on foreign policy. During the, his first campaign, he talked about a 56-inch chest and how he will always protect India. So there are legitimate questions about what happened and did did India misread the situation? Uh, so, can you guys walk me through, like, like why this matters? Aside from a sort of national pride, you know, this is, you know, aside from, aside from national pride issues, you can't even make the claims that you do in the South China Sea that, oh, there's, there's oil underneath. There are fishing regions that people would like to, you know, get their cod from or what have you. Um, what are the... What is sort of driving this? Is it is it really all just national pride at stake? Uh, here, Akil might disagree with me, but I'm I'm with you, Jordan. There's no, there's almost no practical value to much. Not all of the disputed areas, because remember, there's lots of them. But in this case, in the in the western sector or in the dock in those mountains, there's there's nothing there. There, this is, this is a matter I mean, of not wanting to give up yeah. one inch of territory to the enemy. It's partially that. I mean, also there are strategic concerns. I mean, because as as you've kind of got China building inroads into Xinjiang and Tibet and kind of encroaching on India's territory, I mean, this is also emblematic of China's influence in India's neighborhood. I mean, if you think about it, India's relations with all of its neighbors is markedly worse than when Prime Minister Modi came to power. So, I mean, of course, you've got the ever ever present Pakistan relationship, which is which is even worse than it was before, and that's hard to do. You've got Sri Lanka, where you've got the Rajapaksas, who, while India has made attempts to engage them quite early on, I mean, when the day after Gotabaya Rajapaksa's election, India's foreign minister was on a plane to Colombo to meet him and extend well wishes, and the Rajapaksa's first trips were to India, but you cannot deny their admittedly pro-China lean. Now you've got a situation in Nepal where 
the Nepali government has made a new map which contains territory that India claims as its own, the state of Uttarakhand, and this was unanimously endorsed by the Nepali parliament. India's One of India's military commanders said that the Nepalese were doing this at the behest of the Chinese. Now also you've got Bangladesh, which was one of the, the success stories of Modi's foreign policy. I mean, um, securing a land boundary agreement with the Bangladeshis, Prime Minister Hasina and Prime Minister Modi seem to have a good rapport. But now China's gone and gone ahead and offered tariff-free market access to 97% of Bangladeshi products. So while we talk about the Quad, India, the US, Australia, Japan, kind of focusing on encircling China... At the same time, China has encircled India. And so this is much more about India's place in its neighborhood and China encroaching on India's traditional spheres of influence. Is there a way in which China gains cred with the Pakistanis, with the Nepalese, by by doing these little border clashes? With the Pakistanis, sure. I think it's important to remember that you know, this this area of, of kind of greater Kashmir, if you will, all claimed by India, uh, you have the the borderline with Pakistan, the line of control, more or less written in in on on the land where the fighting stopped in 1948, in the first of of many wars between each other, and then in uh, a few years later, Pakistan ceded some of that territory to China, and that still rankles in India. And now you have elements of the China-Pakistan economic corridor going through some of that territory, which rankles the Indians even more. And it's certainly the extent to which China sort of prods India almost certainly is going to be welcome in Islamabad as a sign of Chinese commitment to an alliance that so far has seemed to benefit Pakistan much more than China. Yeah, I mean, so there are kind of two arguments with the Pakistan side of the equation. One, you see arguments coming out of Pakistan that they would actually prefer China and India to have better relations because then China emerges as the counterbalance to to the U.S. and having friendly relations with both countries. Admittedly, that China has much better relations with Pakistan, so it could help take Pakistan's side on negotiations and kind of ease the tensions with India a bit. The other point, um, kind of going back to the border thing, one one co- kind of theory that's circulating in Pakistan right now is that the Chinese claim to the Galwan Valley could lead to pressure on the Karkaram Pass, which is which is controlled by India. And this goes to when Pakistan ceded the Trans-Karakoram Tract to China in 1963. They've wanted it to be a tri-point between India, China, and Pakistan. But it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that there would be any attempt by the Chinese and Pakistanis to try to revise that border point, as it's one of the few points that makes sense as a border. So there are kind of questions of if China could use this prodding India in the Galwan Valley to create an alliance with the Pakistanis to put pressure on India on the border. But I, I don't see it as likely right now because Pakistan has its own issues. And as Sasha said, I mean, the the China-Pakistan friendship is very, very much one-sided in favor of China. I would argue in favor of Pakistan. They've got more out of the Chinese than the Chinese have ever gotten out of them. But Well, I mean, but the thing is, I mean, it's if you, if you kind of look at the economy of Pakistan, it's in complete shambles. I mean, they've gotten... They've got an infrastructure, sure, but they don't get tax revenue because when when you've got CPEC construction happening, 
those funds aren't going to Pakistani companies or to Pakistani workers. They're all going to the Chinese. So that deprives Pakistan of much needed tax revenue that it needs. And it denies Pakistani companies. I mean, admittedly, they may not pay taxes anyways, but that does put pressure, that puts further pressure, fiscal pressure on the government, which is already struggling to pay off its debts. Oh, but it's not like that money was going to come from anywhere else and there would be like a, a better or more effective source of it. Show, show me any, any other entity willing to risk tens of billions of new infrastructure investment in Pakistan. No, agreed. I mean, agreed on that point that no one was willing to invest in Pakistan. I mean, it's kind of like Sri Lanka. No one was willing to invest in Sri Lanka in the civil war. But I mean, now you're seeing that China is not willing to kind of forgive any Pakistani debt, unlike with Africa. So in essence, I mean, this creates a cyclical crisis where it the debt burden just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So yes, I mean, Pakistan has gotten some infrastructure, but it's it hasn't kind of pushed forward Pakistan's development. It's fair. I, CPEC is much more of a geostrategic move than it is an, an actual economic move. It's not going to generate any returns. The, the debt is utterly unsustainable. The, the idea that it will spur you know amazing amounts of new economic activity is probably flawed. You can have a lot of underutilized assets in white elephant projects, but it does bind Pakistan and, and China closer together. And it does, arguably at least, it's still not proven in reality yet, give China more sort of naval access to the to the Western Indian Ocean. But overall, I would still argue that infrastructure investments are better than no infrastructure investments. And if China's the only game in town, it's the way you're going to go. Well, I, I would argue that, I mean, com like, for example, Western companies do want to invest in Pakistan's infrastructure, but the problem is you can't compete with uh Chinese costs and the political the political capital between Chinese and Pakistani leaders. I mean, you've got now um, the phase two of the China Pakistan FTA. Like when I, when you talk to companies in Pakistan, they say their belief is that they cannot compete economically with with the in, the influx of cheap Chinese goods, even if the Pakistan government gives them a significant amount of subsidies. The the manufacturing cost in China is just that much lower, and it's it's prevented the development of any industry in Pakistan. And that's, I mean, and yes, I mean, Western companies do want to invest. I mean, we saw that Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross went to Pakistan after President Trump's trip to India to promote invest investment opportunities. But until kind of the business environment improves and companies believe that the market isn't skewed towards the Chinese. No other company is going to be able to invest in Pakistan. So I remember we had a long conversation about like a dam a while ago. Uh, so that's less of an issue in, in, in this particular region from the Chinese side. But there there are a number of rivers that go between India and Pakistan and China, India and Pakistan or China and Pakistan and India. And there's lots of concern on all sides that if one side or another builds builds a big dam, they could cut off the, the downstream people from, from water. There have been a number of negotiations and treaties around these, d depending on which river, which area, and who's involved. And there's been threats on on sides whenever tensions get really hot that, hey, you know, we will actually will build these dams or we're going to abrogate these treaties or, you know, our treaties allow us X number of water rights and we're only using a small percentage of that. And now we're going to use 100 percent of our quotas on this water um, from these yeah. old treaties, regardless of how much water there may, may or may not actually still be downstream. And it's certainly an, an, an area of kind of long term tension, because if you look out of a multi-decadal time horizon, water shortages in South Asia as a whole get much worse rather than better.
So the, the, the water in those rivers is going to become more important um, strategically. But in terms of these immediate border clashes, water really hasn't been that big on the agenda. If things get worse, you'll start to see water threats come back on the table in a big way. All right. So what's what's Modi's next move? So military-wise, India is limited. I mean, yes, there is the argument that India's troops are better equipped to handle the high atmosphere and better better equipped to understand the terrain. But quite frankly, as we mentioned before, India has not invested a significant amount in its um, military, unlike China. I mean, it's and India's GDP pales in comparison to China. Yes, India is one of the world's largest economies, but under Prime Minister Modi, it has not seen the economic growth that you once that you saw during the first Manmohan Singh government and India's economy has been in a tailspin. I mean, before the China conflict, we were already seeing signs of protectionism. So in the past few budgets, Prime Minister Modi has raised tariffs on a number of projects, products, primarily electronic goods in order to combat India's trade deficit with China stands at about 56, $57 billion. India kind of views this, the trade deficit as a national security concern. So I think that's going to be accelerated now after the China conflict is that you're going to see many more um, instances of higher scrutiny of Chinese investments. So the government has already announced that investments from neighboring countries, Pakistan, China, Nepal, and Bangladesh need to undergo closer, need to undergo these investments need to undergo government scrutiny. Investments from Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh already had to undergo this scrutiny, so it's a move clearly targeted at China. I think that's going to be expanded to foreign portfolio investment, more tariffs on Chinese products, uh, possible cancellation of projects. So we saw today that Maharashtra is canceling a project uh, that has Chinese involvement, in part due to the tensions with China. There are rumors that the government is going to just change the change the rules to exclude Chinese from it, from Chinese pension investments in India. So we're going to see many more of these kind of targeted actions because that's the biggest weapon India has right now is market access rather than uh, military. Uh, you're not going to see Chinese companies being all that eager investing in India anymore. You know, the last five, 10 years, you've seen a lot of growth from a very low base in terms of that investment. And that, that flow gets sharply reversed now. The, the anti-Chinese sentiment in India is enormous Government entities across all levels uh, and departments are looking to cut anything and everything Chinese uh, and Chinese related from from contracts, from projects, from bidding, or from what have you. And this just plays into the government's protectionist narrative where it's looking to spur domestic manufacturing and create domestic manufacturing jobs through import substitution industrialization. Hasn't worked for any other country almost ever, but Modi's going to give it a go in this case. And the Chinese are a big target in in the way in the way of those plans so they're going to all those imports are going to face a lot more tariffs yeah and it's it's going to be interesting to see how the government does this because a lot of in a few economic sectors are really reliant on chinese funding so for example the automobile sector is reliant on chinese funding and parts from china same with the pharmaceuticals about 70 percent of all active pharmaceutical ingredients are sourced from china and so that that during the 2017 doklam crisis that was one area where the government was really concerned that if china really wanted to put the screws on india it could do that there and it could if it cuts off access to the to the rare minerals india's generics industry is in deep deep trouble and more fascinating is how how this will happen with India's nascent fintech sector, because at least 13 out of 18 of India's unicorns have Chinese venture capital funding. 
So how do you disentangle them? And, and so it's going to be a fascinating space to watch about how the government plans to counteract these Chinese investments. Yeah. My, my take on that is like, if the money's in the bank, the money's in the bank. And these like minority investments aren't that big a strategic risk for these for these sorts of issues. But curious what you think, uh, Sasha. I would be surprised if more of those investments get approved. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think all those investments are going to be stopped now. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because like, so for example, India's most popular payment app, Paytm, it's, it's seen as an Indian company, yet it's owned by Ant Financial, which is of course a subsidiary of Alibaba. So that's going to be kind of interesting to see is, I mean, we'll, we'll see the government promoting indigenous solutions such as Rupee, which is India's domestic payments app. But the question is, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting how, to see how India kind of aligns in this U.S.-China tech cold war. I mean, now it's, I mean, it's clear that it's going to go towards the U.S., but will it open up its market for U.S. investments or will it continue down this pathway of kind of promoting domestic champions? I would argue the latter. Sasha, do you have I a I do not have take? a different take. As, as far as India is going to embrace the U.S. purely out of fear and anger uh, about China, that, and that embrace will be far from wholesale in, you know, import substitution, industrialization hits China first, but it hits, you know, it hits other trade partners uh, as well. And, and a more self-reliant India certainly doesn't want to be reliant on China, but, you know, doesn't, isn't keen on being hugely reliant on anyone else either. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's kind of like what we've been seeing is that um, the whole coronavirus pandemic has strengthened the protectionist narrative that India cannot rely on other countries. India needs to rely on itself. And I mean, you're right on like kind of cooperation with the U.S. will be limited. We've we've seen President Trump offer to mediate between India and China. That's clearly not going to go anywhere. India, <laughs> India can we just, can we just is not going to accept out outside. Who wants to play which party? Let's let's do a little let's do a little improv. You know, this this confrontation, very sad. Okay. <laughs> Brave, uh, brave soldiers on um, both sides. Hey Trump, you know what? You know you wanted me to help in that election, right? You really think you really think Modi's got the goods on this one? Come on, just give me give me the Himalayas. They're just mountains. They're little mountains. Listen, I I have the Indian diaspora. Um, make in India, made in make America great again. Make in India, Jai Hind. I love the Hindus. Okay, and the Hindus. Apki bar Trump Sakar. Love me. But so do, you know, Iowa farmers. So uh, I'm sure there's a deal that can be done. Mr. Pre Mr. President, after your election, you will get the biggest trade deal ever from India. I have full confidence that we'll be able to nego negotiate the best free trade deal ever. As long as he, I don't have to have issue any more okay? H1B. I know, I know all, you, all you care about is Twitter, right? I am the king of Twitter. You know those bots they take down? We have tens of thousands more they came from. I will retweet you. To the moon. I do think my rallies would get better attendance in India. Mr. President, if you come to India, you will inaugurate the world's biggest cricket stadium. <laughs> Millions of people will be lining the road for you to come come and and applaud you because that's how much they love you here in India. I don't know what cricket is. I will found I will found a football league and no one will kneel. Now that sounds not a soul kneels in China. We stand. <laughs> That sounds like the true American spirit. But no, I mean, to just go back, I mean, what Sasha was saying is there are limits to 
US-India cooperation, not least because of trade. When India kind of launched this, its protectionist measures, it, it also inadvertently launched a trade war with the US. The US-China trade war gets a lot of attention, but India and the US have been embroiled in a trade dispute, and it's been exacerbated by President Trump, who kind of goes between wanting to fully embrace India. I mean, you can tell that there is a lot of personal rapport between Modi and Trump. But at the same time, there is a limit to that Bonhami, as kind of seen by USTR Bob Lighthizer not making the trip over to India because there was no deal in sight. There have been kind of a few false flags about the potential for US-India trade deal that has just never materialized. And if Trump wins re-election and the Indians have yet to kind of cl clinch this by that, this even mini trade deal with the U.S., that is going to hamper the ability of the two sides to collaborate, given that trade is such an important agenda item for Trump. At the same time, the defense relationship has been growing, but as kind of is pointed out often, is that India is trying to attract more manufacturing jobs, it's trying to promote making India. So the question is, is when Trump wants you to buy U.S. weapons, manufacturing in the U.S., whereas India wants you to come set up manufacturing facilities in India and, and make the weapons there and transfer the technology, there there is going to be a real clash of of heads there. The, the fundamental issue that dogs pretty much every Indian trade negotiation uh, is that India is competitive in very, very few lines of goods. The, the Indian competitive advantage is mostly, not exclusively, in services that require some level of free movement of people. And that's not certainly not an area where leaders like Trump are, are particularly keen on negotiating. And you have the same, it is the exact same issue with the UK as well in talks often on talks over the years about a post-Brexit trade deal. The Indians always demand free movement of people. The other side you always says no, and, and things go back back to square one. Vast majority of trade deals are focused on trade in goods, not trade in services. India's historical negotiating position is, we'll open up for more trade in goods. You have to open up for our services at the same time. And it's been a very tricky line, uh, line for them to walk, and it hasn't been particularly successfully walked in pretty much any Indian trade negotiation in recent years. Yeah, I mean, then that's why the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement talks failed, is because India sought uh, more market access for its services industry and felt it wasn't getting um, adequate market access from China because, I mean, China's Great Firewall prevents India's IT services market from effectively operating there. So now that the India-China conflict has reached a crescendo, we're not going to see India go back to RCEP. And unfortunately, while the best tool that India has right now is to kind of lower barriers to investment and encourage trade and integrate itself into the global supply chain, it's not going to do that. And it's going to continue falling further and further behind China. There is the argument that India is better poised in the long run because it's the average age in India is 30. It has a young workforce. But at the same, but unfortunately, until there's job creation and the government kind of views, views business not as an enemy, but as a partner, India is going to continue to lag behind China. When China's economy is multiple times bigger and growing at a faster rate per year, India continues to fall further behind year after year. And I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, if there's one thing that the government has kind of um, shied away from, it's economic reform and growth. I mean, when 
when Modi first came to power, you saw him uh, unleash a number of, of reforms, including GS goods and services tax, bankruptcy reform, increasing foreign direct investment in insurance to 49%. And there are expectations when he got elected to a second term that he would do the same. Instead, because the government has continued to lose state elections, it's shied away from the economic reform agenda and empowered the, the protectionist and the, the social agenda. And that's, that's come to a detriment of India's economy. You know, I think it's interesting that we, we spent all of our time talking about the western border between where, where India, Pakistan, and China are all nearby. We haven't talked about the eastern border, which is also disputed in many cases where it's a much clearer... Well, there's no Pakistan in the mix, obviously, in the east, and where the strategic considerations are actually tend to be larger. Uh, that's where you have more of the rivers, and that's where you have Chinese incursions in areas that could potentially, at least theoretically, threaten to cut mainland India off from, from northeastern India, that very small area around Siliguri, over the top of Bangladesh, between Bhutan, China, and Bangladesh, where you have China claiming different chunks of, or at times, all of the entire state of Arunachal Pradesh as, as South Tibet, especially around Tawang, where past Dalai Lamas have come from. That's there's still a live burn issue. There's still standoffs and fisticuffs that have happened recently in those areas, and we'll probably see more. This isn't just limited to the Western sector, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's that's kind of what the fear is in India right now, is that the government is focusing all of its efforts on countering Chinese aggression in the Galwan Valley, it's taking its eye off the ball at, in other forms of Chinese incursions. There's, there's 2,000 miles of area that that's moral, could, could be under <laughs> dispute, depending on you know, what side of the bed Beijing wakes up, uh, wakes up on in the morning. There's like the meme, right, that like China is so strategic and you know, they're learning from ancient like warring states philosophers and really understand how to do these geopolitical things. But it seems like there aren't a lot of upsides from Beijing's perspective for picking this fight. Are there any other aspects that I'm that I'm missing to this? I mean, there there is kind of the argument that um, China is trying, China and Beijing are trying to use this to show um, countries in the in Southeast Asia that look, if a mighty country like India can't stand up to us, what chance do you have? And it, it kind of from what we've talked about with our colleagues is that. This is more emblematic of increased Chinese aggression and Chinese assertiveness in a post-COVID-19 era. You've seen incidents in the, in the South China Sea. You've seen Hong Kong. So it tactically, to me, it doesn't make sense about why you would want to pick a fight with India right now. It's picking a fight where fight didn't need to be picked. And as a result, you're harming your market access and the ability of your companies to invest in, in India, a growing market. Now, yes... India only accounts for about 3% of Chinese imports, but it is still a growing market. And that's one of the main reasons companies invest in India is, yes, it provide, it is a headache and it is a challenge to do business. But at the same time, it is a market of 1.2 billion people. I, I see it as a kind of a long-term strategic blunder because the the message to the Indians is, is very stark. They're being pushed to embrace the, the United States, Australia, Japan, much more, more still won't be comprehensive, but more comprehensively and more rapidly than they would have otherwise under the logic that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. China benefits from having an India that's much more kind of standoffish and less likely to take a side or, or get involved in 
disputes China has in, in areas thousands and thousands of miles away from India in the South China Sea and, and, and others. And India has historically not done or said a whole heck of a lot around those areas, a little bit, but but not very much. And given the anti-Chinese sentiment in, in New Delhi right now, I, I think it's safe to say that we'll see a much more active India, an India that's much more willing to engage with, with other countries that, that aren't very happy with what China happens to be up to um, on any given day, and much more cooperative with those countries to try and foil Chinese interests whenever they, they see a good ability to do so, regardless of whether where those interests may or may not be. That kind of goes to India's typical attitude of it's tried hard not to antagonize China. It tries to portray its acts, its actions as kind of for the common good, and it, it tends not to name China directly. I mean, even with the FDI policy, it it didn't say, it said neighboring countries, even though the policy was clearly targeted at China. It's tried to not get too close to the U.S. Yes, the relationship has gotten better, but it's tried to kind of balance the U.S. and China, because at the end of the day, China's on India's border, not on the U.S.'s. But I think Sasha's right. It, this is going to accelerate a trend of India kind of collaborating much more openly with Australia, Japan, and the U.S., and possibly in its version of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which kind of focuses right now on the Indian Ocean region, you may start to see India take a much a more aggressive stance in the South China Sea, which has long been the desire of many Southeast Asian countries, as they've wanted India to have a presence there. Yeah, I, I by and large agree with you guys. Like, it's it's one thing to pull off salami slice tactics in Southeast in you know, in the South China Sea when, you know, you're talking about water and building these, like, islands in the middle of nowhere, but doing the same thing on a militarized border where people die when you, when you take, when you take this sort of activity uh, is a much more, is a much more aggressive and, and potentially self-defeating attack. Especially at the point where... Yeah, and especially when it's two nuclear powers. It's, it's two nuclear powers going up against each other. And yes, there is no first-use doctrine on both sides. But it's still an unnecessary risk, uh, especially at the point where the next time um, angry patrols meet each other on some godforsaken mountain somewhere, they're not just going to be using clubs. Yeah, it's I mean, it, 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 it has the potential to get much more deadly, much, much faster next time. And there will be a next time. Yeah, it, it, this, this happens every year. And next year, it's going to be much, much more violent and much deadlier. The one other thing I, I will add is I remember it, it was years ago. It was about 10 years ago now. Uh, I was at a conference uh, in college, and there was a sort of a distinguished strategic thinker, but on the on the ultra nationalist side from from Delhi, and he really got himself ahead of steam at this conference. And he made the point that you know if Delhi ever really wanted to stick it to the Chinese, they would give nukes to Vietnam. I never forgot that line. God, <laughs> that was ten years ago. He said it. He's still around, and that line of thinking, obviously, still highly marginal, but he's going to have uh, a lot more friendly ears to that line of thinking now than, than he ever had before. Sasha and Akil, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thanks very much for having us, Jordan. Of course. Thanks for having us.